so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast. We're glad you've joined us for this week's discussion about sports and cultural engagement. Sports do not build character, they expose character, which provides a great opportunity for discipleship to those who want to use it. It doesn't inherently build character, but here's what it does. It exposes character. And if we will be intentional about applying the gospel and the biblical truth to our lives, we can be shaped through our love of sports for something far greater than our love of sports. There's no doubt about the major role that sports play in our society. So it's only fitting that the topic was addressed at the ERLC National Conference. David Prince, who is an avid lover of baseball and college football, discussed how Christians can view and use sports as a means of discipleship and a way to engage with those around us. We hope you find this podcast helpful. What I want to do is give you a little taste of a book I've written, uh, give you some sort of lenses to think about uh, the role of sports and cultural engagement. My name is David Prince. I pastor Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and I'm also uh, assistant professor of Christian preaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I'm the father of eight, and I'm married to Judy, and uh, sports are an uh, important part of the culture in our home and have been an important part of the culture of my entire life. And uh, I want to start with prayer, and then uh, we'll dig in. Lord God Almighty, I thank you so much for the great privilege to open your word, to think about what it means to take every thought captive to obey Jesus the Christ. Lord, to attempt to sum up all things in Christ, including sports. Lord, grant us wisdom according to the truth of your word and bless our time together for your glory and for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to do is to take sort of a a poll. I I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, The first one is, who in this room has ever served as a soldier? You've been in the military and served as a soldier. See a couple of hands, okay. Who in this room has ever uh, made a living farming or provided for your family's sustenance through farming? Anybody? I see a couple of hands. All right, the third question I want to ask you this is, I want you to raise your hand if you've ever been involved in athletic competition and you currently uh, enjoy uh, participating or watching sports today. Wow. Isn't that amazing? A couple of hands for soldier, a couple of hands for farmer, 
and almost every hand for sports. That ought to be very instructive to us. Because when we open our Bibles and we see three primary metaphors for what it means to follow God in the world, those three primary metaphors are, first of all, soldier, warrior. The entire biblical storyline is one of spiritual warfare. God creates the world. He places his image bearers in it to take dominion over the world under his authority. And yet there's another voice in the garden. And immediately after they listen to that voice and there's the fall into sin, there's the word of promise. And the rest of the Bible traces out the story of that conflict. So spiritual warfare, the Christian, uh, um, spiritual warfare is not just something that some Christians are involved in. Spiritual warfare is what it means to live the Christian life. So soldier is a predominant image. Another image that is throughout the Bible is the image of being a farmer, an, an agrarian image. The, the, the idea that what it means to serve God is to work really hard and to do everything that you can do, but ultimately you're dependent upon Him. He is the one you pray that He would bring rain. And you look to Him and you cry out to Him even as you labor in the fields. And so that's a clear image. But the third most prevalent image is that of athlete, the the sports imagery. We see it throughout the Bible. I could list all of the verses. But one of the people that we see it very prevalent with is the Apostle Paul. It seems that he can't even talk about what it means to follow Christ without linking it to sports that he was interested in and that most people of that day were interested in as well. But we need to see this. Out of the three primary images, the one image that we have a point of contact with for most of us is sports. So we probably ought to think really hard about what it means to leverage that for the sake of the gospel. What can we learn from our interest in sports? What can we learn from participating in it? What can we learn from being a a fan? Uh, If you summarized everything that uh, the New Testament talks about when it talks about sports and athletics and the reason why it's considered a powerful metaphor for what it means to follow Christ, it would be something like this. Rigorous training and exercise, a singleness of purpose, delayed gratification, self-sacrifice, self-control, perseverance, endurance, focus, and faithfulness. All of those are part of the things that we see drawn out and pointed to that have a lot of carryover with our spiritual lives. In fact, one word that's often associated with uh, athletics is the word agon, which we get the word agony, the agonizing, the, the striving, the, the laboring, the, the putting yourself through difficulty to prepare to try to win the victory. First of all, I want to read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through verse 7. And I want you to hear how Paul in this uh, portion of this letter uh, puts all three of those images in there and how he uses them. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2, beginning in verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 
An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And then notice what he says in verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over these things. Think about what it means to be a soldier engaging in battle. Think about what it means to be a farmer trying to grow crops for the sustenance of a people. Think about what it means to be an athlete and the responsibility that we have to compete according to the rules. Think on these things. But I also want you to see, not only does he bring it up here in Second Timothy, and by the way, uh, the context here is Paul t- calling for courage. And those images all call for that kind of courage. But I also want you to see over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is dealing in 1 Corinthians with a church that's in disarray. It's a church in which a lot of people are exalting themselves And chapter 9 is specifically about what it means to surrender your rights for the greater good of the gospel. And in the context of talking about that, he mentions soldiers, he mentions planting a vineyard, and he mentions athletics. You you see those three key images keep showing up. In verse 7, he says, who serves as a soldier? And he also says, who plants a vineyard? But we, when we come down to the end of what he says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now that's important to note that in Paul's thinking, uh, to compete into sports is to desire to win, to, to long to win the victory, to try to win the victory. But then he continues in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul talks about those things that we are uh, mentioning here, and you do it, he says, for a perishable wreath. But it is to make you think about the reality, of the far more important reality of an imperishable one. Notice that he's pointing out there's a relationship between those two things. So his use of sports is limited. It it is not uh, expansive as the most important thing. It's limited, and yet it is at the same time very genuine. Because sports, for many of us, move us at a very deep level. They cause us to have strong emotions. They are powerful in our lives. But think with me. If you were to go as a missionary somewhere, the first thing that you would want to do when you get in this new place with a new culture is to try to find points of contact with the people, right? You want to find something. What do they like that I can be involved in? So we build a relationship around that cultural reality that I can use to build a friendship and hopefully have an opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel and see them come to faith in Christ. 
Well, we are all called to live missional lives, to be a people who are proclaiming the gospel. And one thing that many of us, if not most of us, have in common is at least some interest in sports. Now, the tendency to think is that we are more sports crazed today than ever. And the tendency is to think that the problematic elements of sports today are worse than they've ever been, and neither of those two things are true. When the Apostle Paul is using this imagery, he's using this imagery in a context of a culture that is crazed about sports, more so than we are, I think. And also, one of the problems with the sports at this time is that, you know, we often say that, let's say, for instance, college football in the South is a civil religion, a competing religion. Well, at this time, the sporting events were religious festivals, religious festivals tied into the worship of all kinds of gods. Paul probably went to the Isthmian Games, and that would have been a a festival where all these sorts of gods were venerated. But note this, even though that's the reality, even though there were all kinds of people in his context who had sports all out of proportion, it didn't change the fact that there was much to learn. And it was a valuable metaphor in a culture that is interested in sports to help us understand what it means to faithfully follow Christ. Here's the problem I see with sports in the church, is that there are generally two reactions to sports, and they're both really unhealthy. Uh, One of those reactions to sports is just simply to be dismissive. I talked about sports one time, and I had a Another seminary professor who came up to me and he said, you know, we don't need sports to accomplish our gospel mission, so why would we worry about it? It's just a distraction. Who cares? You've probably heard people say things like that. But I asked him, do do you ever read a novel? Do you ever watch a movie? Do you ever walk on the beach to see the beauty of the beach? Do you listen to music that isn't directly preaching the gospel? If that's true, and if the only things that really matter are the things that are directly gospel ministry, that means this, we waste most of our lives in meaningless things. Our goal is not to shrink down the number of things in which we see the glory of God. It's the exact opposite. It's to be expansive. When we're going about our daily lives and doing the routine things, we are to see something of the glory of God. In the scriptures, we're going to see we are to taste foods and think about how sweet the truth of God is. We are to draw those connections. We aren't trying to shrink the number of things by which we say, think about the greatness of God. We're expanding them. But but here's the other problem I see in the church with people with sports. Now, there are certainly people who have a, an interest in sports that's all out of whack, right? But, but most people who like sports just simply think, you know, I like this. And it may not be that important. It may not be. I just like it. And so they, they sort of participate in it or watch it, enjoy it as a fan as sort of a guilty pleasure. 
Almost something, well, I know this isn't important, but, but I just like it. You aren't supposed to think about it like that either. You see, the problem with both of those things is they're doing exactly the same thing. They're abstracting the gospel and their faith in Christ from sports. And they're acting as though uh, the gospel and their faith in Christ shouldn't control their thoughts about sports or their thoughts about their enjoyment of sports. The exact opposite is true. We've got to reject both of those things. The truth is that sports do matter for those who enjoy them, just like all kinds of other pleasures in this world matter for those who enjoy them. Nobody has to enjoy sports, but many people do. And in our context, you might even be able to say most people do. But if we are going to enjoy sports, we must have a distinctively Christian approach to the enjoyment of sports. In other words, all of our sporting uh, lives ought to be summed up in Christ. In Ephesians 1.10, the Apostle Paul says that God is at work in the world summing up all things in Christ. Elsewhere, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, that we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. I wonder if you're working at that. If you're trying to sum up your thoughts about sports in Christ. If you're trying to leverage your interest in sports for the sake of the gospel. If you are taking these thoughts captive to obey Christ. What I want to do uh, this morning is just give you a lens by which to think about these things. Just three sort of broad categories to help direct your thinking about sports so hopefully you can join Paul and enjoy sports and keep saying, wow, look, look at how great God is. Look at the beauty of God. Look at the glory of God. The first one is this. Sports are an inevitable response to the world God made. Now, the first question we deal with, Why are there sports? Why is it that almost every culture in all places creates these games and plays them? Well, it is a testimony about the world that God has made and the way he has made us as his image bearers in that world to reflect him. If you think just very quickly, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but but think human beings are uniquely created in the image of God and immediately are given responsibility to take dominion to rule the world under the authority of God. They're also to be fruitful and multiply, which means that as God's image bears in the world, we are to live in community with one another as we take dominion in the world. It means that I don't just care about myself, I care about others. And that means if you're going to rule the world under the authority of God, you're going to have to build things that are going to be helpful for human flourishing. You're going to have to create things. You're going to have to protect uh, people from all kinds of things in the environment of the world. So, so, so God gives this work of dominion. Even before the fall, they were not to just sit there and enjoy what God had given them. They are to use it for his glory. They're to serve him with what they do with the world. In fact, they are to be culture makers. What is culture? It's what we make out of what God has made. Only God can make out of nothing. But we take what God has made and we fashion it into certain things. Some of those things are going to be very utilitarian, very necessary. We're going to have to make instruments and figure out how to gather food. We're going to have to figure out how to store food and all of those sorts of things. 
But many of those things are not going to be utilitarian. They're going to be things that happen because we're enjoying living in community with one another. And we're challenging one another. We're, we're honing the gifts that God gave us with these bodies. We're trying to get them stronger. We're trying to get them faster. In, in, in interaction with one another, we want to be uh, better people who take dominion in the world. And that means that there's going to be some formal activities in this community, but there's also going to be informal ones. Because God has made us a people who not only do things that are necessary, but in reflection of Him, we have joy. And so there's not only going to be formal activity, there's going to be informal play. And when we are involved in that, when we are involved in that, we're enjoying the world that God has made. And when that play formalizes into a set of rules, we call that sports. See, this is inevitable. It's like music. Do we need music to live as human beings? Well, technically, no. But music is inevitable because the glory of God that is seen in the created order demands that we lift our voices up about it, that we respond to him. The same is true with sports. It's inevitable. It's the reason why you get any two kids off anywhere. They don't have to have any sort of formal anything. Guess what? They start picking up rocks and say, I bet I can throw it farther than you, right? I bet I can run faster than you. Let's go to that tree and back. It's inevitable. It's a reflexive response of the fact that as God's image bearers, we are to live together in community. And by the way, that's why the idea that competition is simply an effect of the fall and the reason we have competition is because it's a, a sinful world is just not true. Now, it's harder to compete and not sin because it's a fallen world, but it's harder to do everything else too, right? Competition is a good gift of God for the purpose of effective dominion. Think with me about it for a second. There's a reason why if you're going to lose, try to lose weight, you often get some friends and say, hey, will you try to do it with, let's hold each other accountable. Why? Let, let's see who can lose the most weight. Why? Because you're trying to assert your superiority over one another and you're trying to tear somebody down? Not at all. In the communal competition, you're helping each other achieve more. The same is true with working out. Same is true in all kinds of other things. Have you ever noticed that when they ask athletes, what are the games or what are the matches that you remember the most that were the most meaningful to you? They almost always mention ones that were very hard. And sometimes they mention games or matches that they lost. Why would they do that? Because it is the competition that brings out the excellence. Proverbs puts it like this in Proverbs 27. Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. See, that's not a negative verse. That's a calling out to excellence. Uh, Andy Roddick happened to play tennis in the time of Roger Federer. That means that Andy Roddick went to a lot of finals matches, and he didn't win a lot of them. And if you say, do you wish you'd have been born in a different era? His answer is no. I was a better tennis player because I played Roger Federer. That's true with all kinds of athletes. When you talk to Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and their battles that they had in their era, the competition actually draws out excellence. 
And that's what we want. Because I've got news for you. You think that you want your favorite team to win every game 100 to nothing. But you don't. Here's the truth. If they started winning every game 100 to nothing, you might like it for a little while. But eventually you'd stop watching. Why? Because it is the competition and the way it draws out the best that we appreciate. And in that sense, competing with one another, appreciating the achievement of another is a way that we love our neighbor. It's not a way we destroy our neighbor. Now, it can be if we corrupt God's good gift of sports. So the first thing I want us to to see is that sports, rightly ordered, is not simply about the person competing. It's about the God who created them and about reflecting him in the world. But the second thing I want you to see is this, and this is really important. Sports are capable of providing transforming glimpses of truth, beauty, and goodness. When you watch sports, a lot of times, what do you say? Wow. Now, sometimes you go, oh, man. But a lot of times you go, I cannot believe I saw that. I mean, that's amazing. Now, here's the problem. If you've abstracted sports from your faith, you don't say that tells me something amazing about God. So you don't enjoy it enough. You you think about football. Football is this amazing sport that is ballet-like choreography meet violence, right? Force. And, uh, but, but if you just if you were to just watch uh, football and you were to take out the collisions and you just see the routes and everything, it's this, it's this amazing thing. And so it's finesse and it's also power. So many things are like that. I could break down all kinds of sports and tell you what fascinates me about them. But many of you have experienced the same thing. I've been on my hands and knees when I was a child and Alabama was playing Penn State in the Sugar Bowl and they were on the goal line about to beat us. I was an Alabama, I'm an Alabama fan. And, and, and I still, when I think about that moment, feel that feeling in my gut. Why? Because there's something about the truth, beauty, and goodness I've seen on the sports field that has a role of transforming me in my life. Music is not just something we listen to that entertains us, though it does. It changes us. Art is not just something we look at and say, wow, look at that. It shapes the way we see the world. You see, I think that sports are a competitive manifestation of the performing arts. So the next time your elitist artsy friends looks down their nose at you, Just tell them you're all into the performing arts. Every Saturday during college football season, right? Every every baseball game, every basketball game, or whatever event or sport that you like. That's really what it is. It's the drawing out of that excellence. It's it's the honing of bodies and ways uh, and, and planning and strategy that you say, wow, look at what God's image bearers are capable of. Proverbs 24, 13 and 14 says this. My son, eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. No wisdom is such to your soul. What's he doing? Well, 
as he's saying that, people who have enjoyed honey, their mouths are starting to salivate. There's a physiological response to the sweetness of something that many people enjoy. And then he says, let me connect that daily pleasure to your faith. That's the way wisdom is to be to your soul. Enjoy this tangible thing in in God's created order, this cultural manifestation, but enjoy it for something greater than that. Let it remind you of something even more important. That's exactly the way Paul is dealing with sports again and again. Wayne keeps bringing up races and, and boxing and those sorts of things. When he brings those things up, people's minds flash with what they've seen. But then he says, oh, the person that you cheered for is wearing that perishable wreath. But there's an imperishable one. But you've got to be intentional about that. You've got to be trying to do that for that to happen. It's one thing to stand at the Grand Canyon and go, that's a big hole. It's another thing to stand at the Grand Canyon and say, wow, how big must God be? If he created that. You see, looking at the Grand Canyon can cause you to see something awesome about the immensity of God. And when you see it, you are changed. You think differently. It's the same way with all kinds of other things in which you go, wow, when I watch a beautifully turned 6-4-3 double play, I've just sort of trained myself to say, praise God. You think I'm crazy. But that's the way I feel. The timing and and what's... Now, now that may not be your thing. And that's okay. But it is for me. I see something of the glory of God. Sports has this incredible power of being transformative in so many ways. One of my heroes is Branch Rickey. Branch Rickey is the man who signed Jackie Robinson to play and broke the color barrier in baseball. He picked Jackie Robinson because he was a Christian and he had a righteous indignation about um, the segregation that was going on. And so he appealed to him on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount to be the one who takes the abuse to pave the way. But one thing he did was he sent Jackie Robinson to... uh, Montreal for uh, to, 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 to go to spring training because he didn't want him down in the south going through that. But the manager of the Montreal Royals was a man from Mississippi named Clay Hopper. And one time when Robinson got there, Ricky's sitting there with Clay Hopper and Ricky's, uh, Robinson makes an amazing play. And Ricky says, can you believe that a human being can make a play like that? And Clay Hopper looks at him and says, Mr. Ricky, do you really think that the N-word is a human being? And Ricky told the story after and said, I wanted to hit him. But I knew if I hit him, it wouldn't change his heart. So I just walked off and I believed that he would be transformed by this man. Robinson played for Hopper that year. And at the end of the year, Hopper came to Ricky. And he said, I want you to know, Mr. Ricky, the finest man I have ever known, the finest man I have ever known 
is Jackie Robinson. And I hope you'll put him back on my team next year. Why did that happen? Well, because on this sports team, they committed themselves to a goal that was bigger than their personal preferences. And when this man took abuse and kept playing hard and kept going on, kept displaying truth, beauty, and goodness, it had a transformative reality in the life of his manager who started the season as a racist and ended the season saying, not only is that a human being, that is the finest human being I have ever known. I could give you so many examples like that. Jimmy Scroggins was on a panel with, with me yesterday. He was talking about he has a pastor, one of his other pastors, who's a black man. And he said, you know, we don't see the world the same way. And we, we come from different perspectives. And a lot of times we're, we're sort of, we just decided, hey, we love Jesus. We love this church. We're just going to deal with it. And if you deal with it, guess what? Your hearts get closer together because then it's a family issue, right? What Branch Rickey said is proximity proximity. If we get together and believe that winning a championship and excelling is more important than our individual preferences, guess what? Our preferences will change. That's the power of sports. And sadly, that it's often that sports teams understand that the mission is bigger than them more than churches. Why don't we have multi-ethnic churches? Because we don't understand what's at stake. Because we're not in spiritual war. Too often we're on spiritual vacation. You know why Alabama integrated their football team? It's not some great noble thing. In 1970, USC had black players and beat the snot out of Alabama. And Coach Bryant at that point said, okay, we're going to integrate this team. Why? Because he wanted to win. Because he believed that winning games, this charge that they were given, was more important than the preferences of the people who wouldn't like it, including himself. Why don't we believe that in the church? Sports and cultural engagement, sometimes it's sports leading the cultural engagement and calling the church in the wake. It's because we don't really believe we're in spiritual war and we've got to have everybody. I could give so many other examples. Tom Nettles, who I served with at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said he grew up in a home and his parents never said anything racist. His family never said anything racist. But there was just an underlying sort of theme throughout everything that we're, we're not like those people. He said he didn't even think anything about it. Grew up in a Christian home. And he said it, until he heard that in San Francisco, Willie Mays, his favorite player, was trying to move into a neighborhood and they weren't letting him, were not letting him move in. And he said he thought, I'd give anything if Willie Mays was my neighbor. Why would somebody act like that? And guess what he did? He opened his Bible. And so Willie Mays not being able to move in a neighborhood in San Francisco caused this young boy in Mississippi to open his Bible. And he said, racism is wrong. Baseball pointed him in that direction. His love of the game. And he said, we, we've got it all wrong. I must commit my life to that. My dad loved baseball. And he thought every boy ought to have an opportunity to play baseball. And that included the guy that lived in the bad part of town who had eight earrings back in the 70s and had long hair. And everybody just, 
my dad wasn't a Christian, but everybody attacked him for letting this kid come into our league. My dad said, I don't care what you say. Every boy ought to have a chance to play this great game. It's also why my dad let my friend play in our league, who was the Jackie Robinson of our league. First black kid to play in our league. My dad took all kinds of abuse, but he didn't care. I thought in my own life, if my dad loved baseball more than I love the church, I wonder what arrows I'm willing to take for the cause of the gospel. Let me give you one more category. I'll tell you one more story. Hank Aaron would always tell his dad he wanted to be a pilot. His dad said, ain't no color pilot. So I want to be a baseball player. His dad said, ain't no colored baseball player. So his dad didn't understand anything about politics. He lived in Mobile, Alabama. And one day, Jackie Robinson played an exhibition game in the area. And he said his dad started crying when he saw Jackie Robinson in that Brooklyn Dodgers uniform because he didn't know anything about politics. But he knew Jackie Robinson in a Brooklyn Dodgers uniform meant everything was different. Says his dad crying, put his arm around him, and he said, Hank, you can be anything you want to be, son. The power, the transformative power. But the third category, sports do not build character, they expose character which provides a great opportunity for discipleship to those who want to use it. Sports don't inherently build character. All you got to do to know that is watch the news, right? Not every athlete is the wonderful role model, right? It doesn't inherently build character, but here's what it does. It exposes character. And if we will be intentional about applying the gospel and the biblical truth to our lives, we can be shaped through our love of sports for something far greater than our love of sports. Sports provide us a unique but genuine, a limited but genuine theater that puts us in a position where we are challenged physically, mentally, emotionally. And the question is, how do we respond? One of the reasons I love baseball so much is it's a game of managed failure. No matter who you are, you're one of the greatest baseball players of all times. You fail seven out of ten times at the plate. I tell my kids all the time, at least fail. There's something noble about trying and failing. There's nothing noble about not trying. That sounds a lot like my Christian life or the Apostle Paul's when he says, the very thing I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, that's the thing that I do. Oh, but there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and I'm going to press on, right? Managed failure, persistent plotting in a direction that is hopeful. There's all kinds of things about think, that thinking about that cause my Christian life to be more faithful. But, but let me give you one, one easy example here. I gave you the three metaphors, and there's only one that we have a strong point of contact with. Uh, but think about the average kid's day. Little Johnny, what do you want for breakfast? Oh, you want Fruit Loops? Okay, here you go. You go off to school. The teachers aren't exactly uh, hard on them. Uh, they come home. They watch a little TV. They play a video game. They do a little homework. Uh, you say, hey, did you do your homework? Yeah, I did my homework. They go to bed and they do it again the next day. Where's their character tested? Now, when you have to get up and work the farm before you go to school, sports isn't all that important. In the midst of war where we're having to all sacrifice, but if it's a culture of ease, affluence, will you never hardly get put in situations of pressure to find out how you will respond? Where is your character tested? One thing I love about baseball is there's nowhere to hide anybody. 
You try to hide the kid in the right field, guess where the next ball gets hit? You come up with the game online, and whether you're number one in the batting order or number nine on the batting order, you're either going to get it done or strike out. That's why a lot of parents avoid baseball, to be honest with you. Why would we avoid that? I had a parent tell me one time their kid was about five or six. They said, you know, he is so good. I mean, he just doesn't have character problems. I mean, I, I just, I don't have to discipline him. I said, what sport does he play? Oh, he, he doesn't play anything. Oh, sign him up for baseball and then get back with me. They did it. And I came back to him. I said, how's it going? I said, he threw his helmet. He was yelling at his teammates. You know why? It's the first time he's ever had any external pressure. Real external pressure. You know what happened there? That's the same kid. But sports exposed his character. To which the parents should be saying, praise God. Now we can apply the gospel to it. You tell that kid not, I can't believe that you would do that. You say, I'm not surprised that you would do that at all. In fact, it's a reminder to you that you didn't just sin, but you're a sinner. You need forgiveness of sins. And let's work on the fact that next time you go out there, you care more about your team than you do yourself. I had a kid who threw his helmet every game. I set him on the bench. 13 games in a row. One of my best players. His mom said, he's just so competitive. I said, that's not it. She said, what do you mean? I said, that's not it. I said, he throws his helmet whether we're up by 10 runs or down by 10 runs. That's not competitive. She said, well, what is it? I said, he's really selfish. She said, I never thought about that. That same kid, still playing baseball. I saw him last year. He's a junior in high school. He ran up to me, put his arm around me and said, Coach, thanks for teaching me how to play the game. Thank me for sitting him on the bench game after game. You see, that's the way this works. It exposes character and we bring the gospel to bear on it. That's why little Johnny out there playing, some parents say, oh, it's just sports. Who cares that he's picking daisies and chasing butterflies? Isn't it cute? No. Would you tolerate that in school? Math teacher says, listen, I'm trying to teach math. He's chasing butterflies all around the room. And you go, isn't it cute? No. You'd say, you're being selfish. You're being disrespectful, right? But but then you've got the parent who acts like performance is everything. You know, if, if little Johnny hits the home run, everything's fine. No, it's not. Forget about performance in the sense of, of, of uh, outcomes. Focus on effort. Focus on self-sacrifice. Focus on persistence. My kids played in a basketball league where they gave every, the rule was they gave everybody an award after the game. So, okay, you scored the most points, you scored the most defense, you had sportsmanship, you had the hustle award. And then they'd always get down to the last one. The last one was the Jesus award. Um, Johnny, you were nice out there. You get the Jesus award. Little Johnny was running around, not paying attention, waving at his grandparents and his I get in the car and I tell my sons, you take those awards and throw them in the trash can. I said, I'll tell you if you played like Jesus. You get the Jesus award, you're going to have some floor burn. You're going to die for balls. You're going to sacrifice your body. You're going to respect your coaches. You're going to be a warrior out there. And then you're going to respect your opponent and shake his hand after the game, knowing that you left it out on the court. That's how you'll know if you eat, drink, or play basketball to the glory of God. Just throw the rest of that junk away. And I started hitting me one day. I'm like, I've got the only pastor's kids 
in the world going, oh, I hope I don't win that Jesus award. My dad will kill me. But it's got to be more than just simply something to do. If you're not intentional about bringing the gospel and biblical truth to bear on it, it doesn't matter. And by the way, you can do that as a fan too. I always ask people their their favorite college football team. They're like, that coach, I cannot believe they lost that game. He needs to double down and work harder. I'm like, do you know how hard he probably works? And then I always ask the same thing. Is that the same standard you hold yourself to at your workplace? And sometimes they'll go, I don't make the money he makes. And I say, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were a Christian. Right? I thought you worked to the glory of God. That you weren't just motivated by a paycheck, even though paychecks is great. Right? See, you can You can hold your coach to a standard, but it ought to be the same standard you're holding yourself to. I had a baseball coach in high school. He was a Christian. I didn't know it. I, I was lost. And, and to, to say I wasn't very uh, thoughtful and introspective would be an understatement. I just knew he knew a lot of baseball, and I love baseball, so I listened to him. You know what I didn't know? I didn't know he was dying of cancer. I didn't know how much he loved Jesus. One day he said, Prince, lead us in the Lord's Prayer. I said, Coach, I don't know it. But you know what? I know it now. You know what happened when I became a Christian? I realized that all along he was teaching me way more than baseball. He would teach us when you hit a home run, you don't run out and greet everybody. Home runs are great, but they don't win or lose games. You sacrifice bunt and get somebody over, then you run out of the dugout. Everybody better be out there jumping on that guy. He said, because I believe in the beauty of sacrifice. And when I came to faith in Christ as a 20-year-old college student playing college baseball, that phrase came in my head again and again and again. He was transforming me, and I didn't even realize it at the time. Charles Simeon was a great English uh, preacher, and uh, here's what he said, and I think you can apply this to sports very powerfully. There are but two lessons for Christians to learn. The one is to enjoy God in everything. The other is to enjoy everything in God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for a chance to open the word and to talk about sports, to think about the impact it can have in our culture and the fact that it it, it is itself an act of culture. And Lord, for those of us who love it, may our awe and wonder May our joy always redound to you. And may our love of sports and the little arenas of this world cause us to place ourselves in the arena of your kingdom and to self-sacrificially serve you with determination and passion that knows no end. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. You can subscribe at ERLC.com and join us next week as we hear about the importance of racial reconciliation and urban ministry.